Hi, my name is Peter Bregman, and I'd like to invite you to our upcoming Bregman Leadership Intensive. So I want to share a story to give you an example of some of the stuff that we do. I'm going to change the names. So Joe was a senior leader in an organization, and after one of our debriefs, he stood up and he said, you know, there's something I want to tell you about leadership. And Diane raised her hand and said, you know, every time you speak like that, it distances me from you, it disengages me from you. And he said, I, I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I've been a leader a long time. And she said, yeah, just like that, Joe, that disengages me. And I stopped the action for a moment. I said, look, you know, Joe's in a blind spot, but let's just see if this is real. So there were 20 people in the intensive. We capped the intensive at 20. And I said, who else feels like Diane feels? 19 hands went up. So I said, okay, so there's something here, Joe, and, and let's help you through it. Now, here's what I want you to do. You keep talking. Just keep saying what you were saying beforehand. And everybody else, help Joe out. When Joe says something that engages you, take a step closer to him. When he says something that disengages you, take a step away. Joe, keep talking. And so Joe said, look, this is what I wanted to tell you about leadership. Everybody took a step back. And then he said, you know, I've been a leader a long time, so, and everybody took a step back. Finally, he threw his hands up and he said, I don't understand what's happening here. And everybody took a step forward. And then he said, I don't know what to do. And everybody took a step forward. And through this very visceral, physical feedback, Joe began to learn what he did that disengaged people and lost them along the way, and what he can do through his own courage and vulnerability in order to engage them and inspire them and bring them forward. Everybody in that room had some other obstacle, and we all learned from Joe's obstacle and from each other's obstacles, but we each had an opportunity, everybody had an opportunity to be in the middle of that room and uncover something they didn't even know existed that was holding them back. If you feel you could benefit from this kind of a transformation and you're ready to embrace emotional courage in your leadership and in your life, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to learn more and apply for the intensive. Remember, that's bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership. Don't hesitate because we cap the intensive at 20 people and we're already going through a bunch of applications. I would love one of those to be yours. Okay, now let's head to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We are lucky today. We have with us Jerry Colonna. He has written the book most recently called Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Uh, he has been called the CEO Whisperer by Wired Magazine. Uh, he's an executive coach uh, and he was a venture capitalist uh, before getting into coaching. And he has a really interesting story that's told uh, to us in Reboot. And I'm just delighted to have him on the show with us. And I've got a lot of great questions, so I want to jump in. Jerry, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's it's really a delight um, to be on the show and to just be geeking out on leadership with with a fellow uh, you know obsessive about the ways in which we can lead. So I really, really appreciate you and appreciate the invitation. 
I, I'm delighted that you accepted it. So thank you. So so you wrote you wrote this book and and you say something early on in the book, which is that better humans make better leaders. Yeah. Right. And and I love that. And I think it's really, really important. And I want to dive into it a little bit. And and I even want to question it. Uh, I mean, I agree with it, but I think it's good to question. So the first thing I want to do is sort of ask the question and put on the table: What is a leader? What is good leadership? What? How? How do you define leadership? And I know you know this, but I'll reflect it back. Those are three very different questions that often sort of merge. And so you can define leadership by positional power, structural or positional power. Okay, so the boss, el jefe the one who calls the shots. Um, and I don't think that the leadership that you and I work with and, and that we try to encourage is a reflection of simply the one who calls the shots. And so that gets us into this whole question of good leadership. Um, and good can be broken down even further. Can one be a, um, a good leader if one has created a toxic work environment? Well, yes, if good is defined as producing high quality financial returns. But the real question, and to me the more interesting question is, if we define good leadership as that which creates the opportunity for other people to grow and therefore then choose to follow that person if they have other choices, now that's a really interesting definition of leadership, right? And I and I, uh, you know, I used to in my work say, okay, what we're going after is helping leaders are the people who help the people around them get massive traction on their most important work. And then I started coaching a bunch of people who I considered to be really poor leaders in many dimensions who were very effective at getting massive traction on their most important work. And, and I even changed the definition of what I did to say that what I want to do is help successful people become really great leaders. Because I know a lot of successful people who are not great leaders in terms of the definition that you've just defined. I know very few great leaders who are not successful. But I, but I know a lot of people who've become very successful. And, and it was a real aha that like you didn't actually have to be a great leader in order to be successful. That it's a choice that you make to say, I care about being a good leader, and I'm going to add that to what I'm trying to accomplish along with whatever success I'm, I'm pursuing. Yeah. I'm, I want to bring your attention back to the story I tell in the introduction of the book, if I can. Yeah. I tell the story of being really sweaty and without shoes and, you know, jumping up on a dry erase board and defining what I've come to call the formula, which is this notion of practical skills plus radical self-inquiry as I define it, plus this shared experience, equaling enhanced leadership and greater resiliency. And as I tell that story in the book, if you recall, I zero in on this notion of resiliency. And I think it sometimes is surprising, and I'll imagine that you experience something similar when you work with your clients. People are surprised when I say, I kind of care about your quote leadership, but what I really care most about is your heart and how you are as a person and this notion of surviving this journey. The reason I bring the attention to that is there are really successful leaders who not only create toxic environments around them, 
but also create toxic environments within them. I might even argue that it is unlikely that you would create a toxic environment around you if you don't also create a toxic environment within you. Really well said. Really well said. And that the two are, are, are actually interdependent. Right. Right. And so we can sort of sit here and debate the definition of success, which is what I think we're really talking about, the definition of success. And sure, if the metric of a company or an organization's success is fiscal performance or market share or growth, that's great. But there's something really beautiful about expanding that definition of success what did you? What was the phrase you used before? You said uh, about uh, giving people traction to do. Yeah, get, getting massive traction on your most important work. Right. So, what if the definition of most important work for for the people with whom you work is their own personal development? Mm-hmm. What if What if work was the medium by which we grow? I'm a hundred percent with you. The question that I sit with is. Is it a hard sell to shareholders to say that we are we are using work as a vehicle to develop ourselves personally? And so we're going to put a lot of energy into that. And and we have a belief and a, we're making a bet that it will translate into results, but not necessarily. Well, uh, you know the answer to your own question. Of course, it's a hard sell. <laughs> Right. I, ha- I have a client. Um, I write about him in the book, so I feel comfortable sharing. And I know he's comfortable with that. This is Ben Saunders, the polar explorer. And I tell his story about, you know, he was one of two humans to ski to the ed- from the edge of Antarctica to the South Pole and back. If the and world we were flat, he would have fallen off. That's right. And when we, when, when we were coaching during that time period, he used to get on the phone with me on satellite phone and he'd complain about it was how hard it was. And I said, well, of course it's hard. <laughs> You're doing something that no one else has. Ever. If you want easy, that's down the block. Right. And I'm being facetious, but yeah, of course it's hard. It's hard to sell this to shareholders. And maybe if it's impossible, if it's a public market. Right. But you know what? If we don't do this, what kind of world are we leaving our children? Right. I mean, as I often say, it's not like corporations are going to go away, right? They're actually one of the most successful inventions humans have ever come up with for changing and altering the world and the landscape. So why not try to somehow marry financial success with human development in the same container. Right. Someone was asking me sort of why I do this work and, and kind of alluding to the altruism of, of, of my approach. And I was saying, it's not, don't make any mistake. I'm not altruistic at all. Like I'm trying very, very hard to create a world that I really want to live in. That's and it. like the more I do that, the more I get to live with these people who I fall in love with. And like that's that's the world I want to live in. So I'm like, I'm kind of doing this for selfish reasons. It that's see, <clears throat> as you know from the book, I'm I'm I, I'm a student of Buddhism and have been for a long time. And that's where this sort of almost um, uh, self defeating distinction between altruism 
and and self self optimization start to collapse in and upon itself. So because there is a self a grand not aggrandizing but optim optimizing component to an altruistic act, we can then get so worried about uh, about coming across as hypocritical that we actually stop trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> stop. <laughs> You're allowed to enjoy your life. Right. It's, right. A, it's an important message. In fact, if you really want a, a Tal Ben-Shahar who writes a lot about happiness and, and I adore, he's a friend of mine and he's a really excellent guy and he teaches a lot about happiness. And, and, you know, one of the things that he says is like, it is clearly important for the people around you, for you to be happy, because if you're not happy, they'll be miserable, right? Like, like your, you know, like your happiness is both infectious and your unhappiness is infectious also. And so it's not, it's, you know, in, in his, you know, what he says in effect is it's not a selfish act to work on yourself. No. And it's, and, and that's really important because, you know, again, go back, going back to some of the, the messages in the work that we do, sometimes a leader will say, well, I can't spend the time looking at these structures inside of me, because if I do, that's self-indulgent and I have work to do. Right. Well, but those structures actually get in the way of the people around you from doing the best work of their lives. So maybe actually it is in their best interest for you to be happier. So I want to ask you a question about this radical self-inquiry, which feels profound and, and, and it's, you know, and I spend a lot of my time doing it. I have a question about it, which is that, that I know people who do radical self-inquiry without any transformation or liberation of, of their issues. And that seeing, you know, let's say we have a false narrative. Let's say I have a narrative, I'm jumping into specifics of the book, but let's say I have a narrative around money. Right. Which says which I can even understand, which says, you know, my mother survived the Holocaust. Uh, we were sort of privileged growing up, but also almost went bankrupt a couple of times. And I have an insecurity about money and I have this sense and it's a narrative that I can understand that says that the more money I make, the safer and more secure I'll be. And that uh, I know it's false because I know that there's a million things in life I can't control and money can't control. But I have this drive that says if I make more money, I'll be safer. I'll be able to deal with the issues that life may throw at me and keep my family safe. And there's this um, and, and seeing that false narrative is not at all the same of freeing myself from it. And, and right. the question is, how does radical inquiry free us versus educate us? You know, it's sort of realization versus liberation. Um, you know, how do you move out of the conceptual realm to that to actually have it impact my day-to-day -day life? So it's a great question, and, and I'll frame it. Frame my answer this way. If awareness was enough to cause transformation, then we wouldn't have a problem with cigarette smoking. Right. 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 Or obesity so, or, or obesity any of the, or right. That's right. So awareness is a necessary condition, but is not sufficient for creating the transformation that you're seeking. Right. So but that's an important point, first of all, because more often than not, leaders that that I think create um, challenging work environments don't even have the awareness or what happens is the awareness is kind of, uh, in a blind spot often to the right 
not really there. And so it shows up like this. Who, me? I don't have issues with money. It's everybody else who has issues with money. I'm purely motivated. I have this going on. And that, and, and in the book, I refer to the, to the Jungian notion of shadow. That's an aspect of leading from the shadow where I'm denying something that is true about me. And, and worse, we've both done enough 360s and performance reviews with people where everybody else around the person knows what's going on. Well, yeah, not only that, but it's like we've done those 360s. So when I, I actually recently had this where it was a leader that I was coaching and, he, and I said, you know, your next move now that you've received this information is go back to people and say you heard it and this is what you've heard. And he said, I can't do that publicly. And I said, what yeah. do you mean? And he goes, well, I can't. I don't, I mean, I get it and I can work on these things, but I don't want to necessarily tell everybody that this is, that this is how I am because that's going to influence them. I'm like, here's what you don't understand. They already know, right? Exactly. You're the only one that's keeping it a secret because they're all talking about it to each other and to me. So like, you that's know, right. and not only are they the only talking one out about of this it. conversation. Right, right. Not only are they talking about it, but they're actually having their own emotional reactions to it, which is undermining the efficacy of the work that they're trying to do. And that you're trying to do because you're not getting the information that you need because they're not willing to come to you to speak with you about it because it doesn't feel safe. And so the whole thing is a kabuki dance where everybody's pretending to actually do work simply because the leader is like, no, I'm not going to tell the truth about who I am. No way. Because then they'll use that against right. So now once we get to that awareness piece, right, which says, okay, so now I'm aware of it and I'm even willing to speak about it and I'm willing to be public about it. How do I then move from knowing cigarette smoking is bad to actually stopping the cigarette smoking? Right. So And actually one with cigarette the... smoking, it's different even. It's easier, dare I say it, although I haven't smoked and then had to give up smoking. So I don't want to, I don't want to say it's easier yeah. necessarily, but but to do something that's like an unconscious, become conscious driver that still possesses you in a certain way, you know, and maybe it's the same as cigarette smoking, but it's like, how do you release yourself from the binds of the, the sort of oppressive drives that keep you conceptually, unconsciously safe? Right. So one is with safety and love. And that's really important because part of what your client, you were just telling the story, part of what your client was dealing with was he was not accepting of the aspects of himself that were so needed to be disowned and dismembered from himself that it produced shame. Right. I'm not going to share this about me. And so by welcoming in that part of it and saying, oh my goodness, this is the way in which I am human. Surprise, you're a human being. This is the way I'm human. That's the first step to actually altering its influence. Those, I call them in my book, subroutines. Those programming subroutines never go away, but we can mitigate their influence so that we're not dictated to by what's happening. So that's thing one. Thing two is to slowly allow the air into the room and begin to kind of laugh. Oh, you know me, I got this thing about money and it gets, it gets. And so then when conflict starts to arise, you enable the people around you who are your partners to say, yeah, Peter, that thing you're doing, is that 
because the company really needs this or is it because you're trying to make sure that your whole family is safe? Right. Because I love you either way and I'm going to be with you and I believe in your leadership either way because you've been a real, authentic, vulnerable human and you've allowed me to do the same. So therefore, I'm going to hold you to the, the, the task you've asked me to hold you to. So critical to this whole process post self-inquiry is, is sharing it with people who you trust exactly. and who can lovingly hold you, not even hold you accountable, but remind you of hold up a mirror so that you can see what's going on in the moment and then make your own choices and take risks that might That's really feel like risks to you, even though they may not feel like risks to the people around you. That's right. The, the brilliant late poet, uh, John O'Donoghue, has a wonderful line in his Blessing for a Leader, which, is, which goes like this. May you be surrounded by good friends who mirror your blind spots. Right. And the good friends part of that is really important. Right. Right. Who say, Peter, I hear you. I accept the totality of you and that thing that you just did. Yeah, that's coming from that place in you. Right. And you've asked me to hold up a mirror when you're doing that. And so I'm going to hold up the mirror and say, I think that that's a poor business decision for us. If we can take back our stuff, then what's interesting is we then start to model for everyone in the organization to do the same thing. And is that necessary? Is that, the, is that what is necessary to get a hold on the difference between you know, in some ways I would say our history and reality. And and what I mean by that is, you know, I'll just keep the money conversation going because it's, it's mm. useful to have a very specific example. Like if I, um, if I'm making a decision that arguably could be based on my fear of not having enough, mm. I literally in that moment don't know if mm. that's, the right decision because it's an important decision to make because it secures the business, et cetera, or if it's coming out of that other place. And, and it's, it's like, you know, it's sort of, you know, you, you talk in the book about, about stopping the BS and the spinning. And I think the blind spot means we don't actually know clearly what's BS and what's true because we're, you know, we're not being jerks on purpose. We're, right. we're, we're trying to keep ourselves safe and the people around us safe and make really good and smart decisions. And we have insecurities and we have histories and we have, and we don't really know where that line is all the way. It's not so clear to say, I know that's the right decision. And I get that I'm making this other decision because I'm scared. It's like, no, I think this decision I'm making while scared is the right decision. And how do mm. we ferret out that difference? Is that the role of a coach? Is that the role of a good friend who holds a mirror to our blind spots? Or is there some other way to discern that? The word that's been like blinking in my head in neon lights is community. This is when the community is there at its best, is when the community sits together and we hold each other accountable. Now that could be co-founders. It could be senior executives with whom we work. It could be our employees. My goodness, can you imagine empowering employees to truly give uh, unvarnished feedback without a sense of retaliation 
in a 360-degree performance review. So the challenge, of course, is that they have their own stories. And so the yeah. unvarnished part, it's like, well, that's coming from their history. And then, like, then you suddenly realize we're like this, all of us, no matter how successful we are, no matter how, how clean we want to be, we're like this gaggle of dysfunctional people all trying to hold each other and ourselves accountable in some better way with, you know, terrible failings and inability to see clearly. And, you know, then you almost throw your hands up and you go, oh, my God, like, you know, that's the blind. So so you throw your hands up and I laugh with joy and say, ah, yes. Right, right. So so we get to all sit around and be better humans together. And we get to, instead of holding ourselves to, to some unattainable, unreasonable standard of performance and behavior, we get to say, oh, this is how your heart hurts today. Here's how mine does. So let's roll up our sleeves and let's do the work in front of us because then the work becomes something really sacred, something really powerful. I actually think that societies, human societies have actually been doing this for millennia. It's just that there's this false notion that somehow when we walk into that organization, we have to stop being human. And by that measure, everyone's a failure. And if everyone's a failure, everyone's a success. Somebody, somebody read the galley and said to me, you really think everyone can be a leader? It's like, yeah, just like I think everybody can be an adult. I really think that everyone can grow up. I think we're designed that way. Now, there are some instances where I'm going to need my friend Peter to lead me. And tomorrow, Peter may be struggling, and I may need to lead my friend. And I don't know about you, but that's the world I want to live into. Right. And, and it's a world that requires that we all live with tremendous humility and, and willing to either feel shame or leave shame behind because it's sometimes it's not a choice. It's just, you know, one or the other, but, but it's, you know, it's to, you know, to receive feedback and to be held accountable. And yes, to, to know that they, that the, you know, I, I know that Eleanor, my wife loves me. And when she holds me accountable to something, I, I still feel some shame around it because I didn't get it right. And I didn't, you know, I'm not the good boy. And, and, and I could feel a desire to defend and to resist. And I have to really breathe through that in a sense to say, okay, she's sharing something with me that's important. And, and, it's, and, and, and in the state that I'm in right now, I'm not in the right place where I could assess whether it's right or not. So I just have to accept it and listen to it and, and sit with it because, you know, it's too easy to defend against it. And I think you're a lucky man. And I imagine you must be loving to be able to have that relationship with Eleanor. Now, two things I would say. One is imagine that you ha- you were able to say exactly the same thing in your work environment. Oh, powerful. Right. right. Absolutely. And now I think you mentioned you had kids, right? I would almost say in some ways it's easier in a work environment than in personal relationships at times, right? Amen, brother. And yes, you I have, have three children? kids. What are their ages? Um, 11, 13, and 16. Okay. So I'm going to do the magic trick on you that I'll do with my clients. What kind of company are you building? And let's imagine 10 years from now, 20 years from now, your children are working at that company. Now, tell me, is this worth it? Is it hard? 
Sure. Right. That's a great thought exercise. Right. Because if are we building the organizations where we would be as parents be comfortable that our children are going to work there? Right. And if not, why not? Right. It's great. It's a great question. One of the things that you talk about in the book and that I really resonated with is this idea of trying to run as fast as possible. And like we're running and running and running hmm. and, 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 and there's a point at which we have to stop. And, and if we stop, and this is what I sat with, because I, I feel that too. Like I, I, don't, I don't, recently I haven't had this, you know, in the past five years, but, you know, I would definitely have chase dreams all the time. Like I'm just running <laughs> from something. And if we stop, if we really stop, um, I could see why that's really powerful, and there are consequences to stopping. Like if I if I say, okay, I'm gonna not, I'm not gonna run as fast. Well, that means some things aren't gonna get written. It means some calls aren't gonna be made. It means you know some work won't get done in that same way. And and how do we stop running without stopping? Or how do we again discern? the running to exhaustion versus the engagement in building what it is that we're building. But there's some neediness to that that is not healthy, but at the same time, stopping seems very risky. And that's where I think people get caught. Yeah. I know I get caught there. Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, earlier you talked about at, for illustration purposes, you talked about your relationship with money and you mentioned some of the history. And so I would ask you to inquire in to the relationship between the fear implicit in not having enough and the need, the fear that you have of what happens if I do slow down and I just stop. Is there a relationship between the fear of not having enough money, for example, and this is a very uncoach-like question, but I'll deal with it, not having enough money and not having written enough, done enough? Oh, for sure. 100%. 100%. Right. And so um, my friend Seth Godin as he was counseling me and supporting me in the process of this book, advised me, gave me a piece of advice, which I'll give here. It's never before been made in public. And he said, uh, Jerry, remember, leave stones unturned, which is a really powerful, pithy way of getting at it. I can just speak from my own experience that equanimity, which is the thing that I've been seeking this peace of mind only comes about when I leave things undone. See, I don't think you and I are the kinds of people who are motivated simply for the accumulation of wealth. Right. How many gold coins do I have? It's like, we don't think about it, but I, I really resonate with, are the people I love safe, warm and happy. Right. And the association with having enough in order to make sure that that's true now and forever and all times against all circumstances, pogroms notwithstanding, you know, snowstorms, anything. Right. Right. And the truth is we're both laughing because that's impossible. 
you actually cannot forever and ever guarantee love, safety, and, and, and happiness and belonging to every one of your loved ones. And so you're going to end up leaving stones unturned. Right. And maybe, you know, as a parent, one parent to another, maybe this is the work we leave our children with. Maybe if we took care of everything for them, then maybe they, we would be doing a disservice in a different way. Right. Because they wouldn't have the joy of sacred work and figuring it out themselves. And it's so, so right. And tying this also to leadership, I just want to reflect that, you know, this is like our conversation is is the conversation of the book reboot. And it is also the conversation that if our leaders in our organizations are having, then they can come to their role as leaders in a calmer, more centered way, focused on what's most important for the people around them, for the business, as opposed to acting out of the sort of un, uninquired uh, insecurities and and issues that they might be facing, and that that creates the kinds of leaders and the kinds of organizations and the kinds of communities and the kind of a life that I think you and I both want to live in. You got it. And the kinds of organizations we both want our children to grow to up work in. in. Yeah, and to, to grow work up in. and to work in. We've been talking with Jerry Colonna. His wonderful book is Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, check out the book because it's a continuation and uh, elucidation of, of this conversation. And, and the, you get a lot of Jerry uh, in that book. So thank you for Jerry being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Peter, thank you. Thank you for some brilliant questions. I really, really enjoyed them. Hi, Peter Bregman here again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I want to remind you at the close that we are looking through applications now for the Bregman Leadership Intensive. I would love one of those applications to be you. Please go to the URL bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to learn more and apply for the intensive. It will really develop in an unimaginable way your emotional courage and impact your leadership and your life. Again, we cap it at 20 people, so don't hesitate to apply now. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week.